I begin with a traditional story retold by Doug Lipman. This comes to us from the Jewish traditions. So some students of Rabbi Baal Shemtov came to him one day with a question. Every year we travel here to learn from you. Nothing could make us stop doing that. But we have learned of a man in our own town who claims to be a, a Zadik, a learned and righteous one. If he is genuine, we would love to profit from his wisdom. But how will we know if he is fake? The Baal Shem Tov looked at his earnest students. You must test him by asking him a question. And he paused. And he looked at his students again. You have had difficulty with stray thoughts during prayer? Is this so? Yes, said the students eagerly. We try to think only of our holy intentions as we pray, but other thoughts come into our minds. We have tried many methods to not be troubled by them, but still the thoughts come. Good, said Baal Shem Tov. Ask this man, who claims to be learned and righteous, ask him to weigh the way to stop such thoughts from entering your minds. The Baal Shem Tov smiled. If he has an answer, he is a fake. If he has an answer, he is a fake. I love this measure. I love this measure of whether someone is legitimate or just trying to sell you something. I mean, prayer and meditation, uh, contemplation, any and all of these forms of reflection are common across faith and humanity, spiritual practices. I mean, here we go. How many people have at least tried meditation, the kind where it tries to get you to focus your mind? Yes, yes. And eliminate distracting thoughts. Were you ever able to eliminate those distractions? No. I mean, if you say yes, by all means, what do you have to sell? I want to know. But I'm going to say no. The practice is the point, right? To follow a particular path, to deepen, to explore, and to fully stop the mind chatter, yeah, that's not going to happen. One of my favorite moments of learning about the Dalai Lama was, was his confession. Not really even a confession, but him just saying matter-of-factly, oh yeah, my mind goes in all kinds of places too. Even the Dalai Lama. In this story with the Baal Shem Tov, there are two impossible claims. One, the elimination of distraction. 
and two, the definitive answer. The Rabbi Baal Shem Tov offers a simple approach that helps the students discern the merits of this teacher. The heart of religious and spiritual and a world, you know, just living in the world practice is this practice of inquiry, of asking questions, of not accepting the answer at the first encounter. The heart of practice isn't mere acceptance of faith and belief, not going with uh, where one answer is provided and immediately defined as definitive. The heart of practice is the practice and the inquiry. I deeply respect the Jewish tradition of questions and examination and argument with co-explorers with its deep history of doing so, of debating history, of debating interpretation, of debating scripture, debating and getting ticked off at Yahweh. At its best, spiritual and religious engagement teaches us how to wonder, how to inquire. And this is true as I have found this in Buddhism, it's true in Islam, it's true in Catholicism, it's true in many branches of Christianity, in the pagan traditions, in indigenous paths. That moment of, wait a minute, I have a question, is universal. And it's that one question is this one of many in the course of exploration. To inquire is no surprise at the heart of a liberal religious tradition, pretty much by definition. The liberal approach is to hold our bag of beliefs with us and open and kind of flexible, but not just everywhere. As we heard in the story, as Paul Dodenhoff says, the freedom to doubt, to question, to be content, to live in mystery is central to the liberal religious tradition. Like the process of evolution itself, the path we follow, our practice, is not easy or simple. It's not without dead ends or disappointments, and there are no guarantees. And that's fully the experience as someone who grew up in this tradition. I presume that there are questions. It's the water in which we swim, if you will. We do the backstroke and we do the, you know, we do all of that. On any given Sunday, there are and were more questions than people in the room by maybe a few fold, frankly. The Bible was not taken literally, but more as part of the story of its time. It was more poetry, not a measure of faith. What led me to bigger questions, um, to bigger wondering, was when I encountered Unitarian Universalists who held uh, a range of beliefs. You know, it's a big tent, and so you have a lot of different places where people will encounter and explore, including Scripture and Jesus and God at the center for them. And they were also part of this tradition. I hold in high regard 
the Christian beliefs of many of my colleagues, and I benefit from the spiritual richness in prayer and song and worship when I get to gather with them. Many things can be true and wonderful all at once. But I also recognize the struggle and, in fact, the hardship for how so many of those of us gathered in this tradition and in the world lost, lost a lot when we started to doubt. Some of us even lost our families, our whole communities. I keep hearing stories of that loss. I've been hearing that all the entire time of being um, talking with people about where, how did you come to find Unitarian Universalism? I think some of the most heartbreaking are the ones where people say, I truly cannot go back to my family. All for a bit of doubting. And the holidays at this point, I want to recognize how much that complicates the matter as well. Here we are, mere mortals, wrapped up in our questions, in genuine curiosity, wanting to know our place in the universe, and wanting to also have a sense of control, a sense of being connected, want to know what to trust and believe. It is remarkable how much religious communities and large branches of certain religions limit and control the experience of faith and wonder. I know every Unitarian Universalist congregation has a lot of um, ex-Catholics some, I've heard, say, call themselves recovering Catholics for one group in particular. Former adherents in many, many ways. But also, but also how many people are still working within. It's not an either or. It's working within and trying to still have relationship with family, with community, and also with faith because of how much also, they might have benefited from some of the beauty and the love that they also experienced in a respective tradition. We get to be further challenged by our current context of how difficult it is to simply know what's real in the world. This is true in our computers and technology with chat, GPT, and um, artificial intelligence. Like, who are we actually talking to when we're seeing something online? But also, how hard it is to know what is fact and what is opinion and what is propaganda. And there's a lot of propaganda. We are told not to believe certain sources and people, when those sources are highly suspect. And yet, how do we still make sense of? How do we know what we can hold on to? It feels, 
how to say, for me, it feels like, like Dorothy in the tornado in The Wizard of Oz. Flashes of reality all over the place and still caught up in the swirl. Maintaining, simply maintaining a healthy practice of doubt is itself a struggle. Simply maintaining a healthy practice of doubt is itself a struggle. It feels like the authentic question is its own endangered species to a degree. I've always appreciated the wisdom from one of our 20th century Unitarian ancestors, the Reverend Robert Weston. His words, entitled, Cherish Your Doubts, were in the hymnal of the time. It happens to be this hymnal known, it's called Hymns for the Celebration of Life. We usually call it the blue hymnal. It's the blue one, we have the gray one, we also have the teal one, and so on. And this is the one I had in divinity school and carried with me. And his words include, Cherish your doubts, for doubt is the attendant of truth. Doubt is the key to the door of knowledge. It is the servant of discovery. A belief which may not be questioned binds us to error. For there is incompleteness and imperfection in every belief. Doubt is the touchstone of truth and is an acid which eats away the false. Let no one fear the truth that doubt may consume it, for doubt is a testing of belief. The truth stands boldly and unafraid. It is not shaken by the testing. For truth, if it be truth, arises from each testing stronger and more secure. Cherish your doubts. For doubt is the attendant of truth. It is the servant of discovery. I think those few words are some of the most grounding for me. And Robert Weston doesn't mean truth as an absolute either. Let me be clear. It's not truth with a capital T. There is not one truth. The work is discovery. Doubt does not serve an idol that one could make of truth that relies on our obedience. The work is discovery. We must be free to pursue this effort. As Paul Dodenhorf points out, we will be aggravated by the dead ends, the disappointments, the lack of resolution. We are in for a lifetime of aggravation. Amen. And the practice is part of the work to simply preserve the freedom to doubt. The other point I want to return to with the opening story about the rabbi is what he's also asking the students to do 
and just simply with the students, the relationship that is demonstrated there, that it is about doing this work together. The heart of the practice is also doing this doubting with others, in community, with fellow students, with elders, with people of all ages. The individual journey and the shared journey has been part of the heart of the liberal approach for religion for all time, all time. Human impulse, the human impulse cannot leave well enough alone. We got to keep wondering. We have to keep questioning and wanting to know why and how. One of the ones I've, I most appreciate from uh, our history is the Universalist Hosea Ballou, for example, in rural New Hampshire, Vermont, in the late 1700s, in the space of like two seasons, I think. He went from being a fully baptized on board member of his father's church to being excommunicated. He was very good at that. Because he kept looking at the Bible and reading it and saying, I don't see what you see. I see a whole other truth. And then he went on to proclaim one of the most expansive and inclusive theologies to thousands of people. In a time when you don't have radio and amplification, he was proclaiming that one doesn't even need to hear about Jesus to be in right relationship with God. 1805, this was a thing over 200 years ago, proclaiming. He was one voice in our long, long line of enthusiastic doubters. I am so grateful to be in the company in which we keep doing that work today. So all that said, I recognize, and I wanted, I brought the question of doubt into this month when we're in these holidays and kind of being asked to sing and think about peace and uh, goodwill and the larger picture, and we're about to celebrate Christmas, with all of its wonder and all of its scripture as well. Because next Sunday evening, we will have lessons and carols and choir and music. And yes, there will be some from the Bible and some from modern thought. And we will have Jesus and God and the star and angels. It's Christmas. That's what's there but also neither the church nor I is asking you or anybody to subscribe to one understanding of this story and the elements thereof. We're not asking people to, to say yes to a particular vision of God. No, that's not the point. We will tell the story of migrants, of wise people seeing a sign of life and hope, of hardship in the world, of new life undefeated. Like the reading from Paul Dodenhorf, I want to invite us, invite you to join us for a chance to just simply be in mystery and wonder, to be immersed in this experience and 
be in the wondering mind, be in the doubting mind, be in the questioning mind, but sometimes it's simply about letting the experience be with us. And recognize the power of people saying the world can be different. Say, why does the world have to be this way with tyrants and empires and people put down? That was the question that got this started a long time ago. And we continue to ask that today. Wondering about whether the child will, born, will be born, whether the child will live beyond the efforts of the empire to destroy them. These are the questions. We wrestle with our existence and place in the universe Every time we sing of the star of Bethlehem, of angels, of shepherds, of the holy night. Each night a child is born, we proclaim, is a holy night. It's a time for singing, a time of wondering. The world is so much greater, so much larger than our mortal questions. And still we wonder, and still we ask, and still we keep living. If anything, if anything, we get to embrace Christmas as an act of subversion, of flipping the script that says wealth and power and armies will rule. Instead, we question that premise and instead proclaim that a single precious life has the capacity to disrupt those in power and call for justice and dignity for all. I think we should keep getting into it with those questions, yeah? We find what emer emerges as true for each of us, what emerges for our living together, for our human merely being in the vastness of our existence. So let us go forth in the spirit of that practice of inquiry and discovery, in the practice of freedom where we in fact do cherish our doubts and the greater life that comes from this journey. Amen.